everybody, this is Nathan here with Jake, and you're about to listen to what we call Sound of Sanity 1.0. Now, Jake, what do we mean when we say Sanity 1.0? Well, Sound of Sanity was a show we'd been wanting to do for a really long time, and we'd never really seen our way clear to getting it off the ground. Right, so one day we decided the best way to get it off the ground was just to sit down, hit record, three friends talking into microphones. Since that time, the show has changed and grown a whole lot. The modern version of Sound of Sanity really began to develop around episode 34 on Jordan B. Peterson. Yeah, there's some stuff we're really proud of in this early iteration of this show and some stuff we're possibly, probably, maybe not so proud of. But there's some good stuff and we wanted to leave these up. Plus, we thought it'd be fun for people who know the current show to go back and see how far the show's come. Yeah, fun and maybe sometimes a little humbling. No doubt. Anyway, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the current version of the show. That's right. And meanwhile, please enjoy this episode from the archives. You are now listening to the sound of sanity. The sound will continue for the duration of the program. Casablanca, city of hope and despair, located in French Morocco in North Africa. The meeting place of adventurers, fugitives, criminals, refugees, lured into this danger-swept oasis by the hope of escape to the Americas. But they're all trapped, for there is no escape. Against this fascinating background is woven the story of an imperishable love and the enthralling saga of six desperate people, each in Casablanca, to keep an appointment with destiny. I was willing to shoot Captain Reno, and I'm willing to shoot you. All right, Major, you asked for it. It's Sanity at the Movies! Is that what we decided to call it? Yeah. Sanity at the Movies! It's why why were Sam. you why were you gargling, Nathan? I don't understand. Are we gonna talk about a mouthwash movie? Or That's something? how I clear my throat. All right. Oh, okay. I get it now. Uh, welcome to the inaugural episode of Sanity at the Movies. My name is Nathan Oppers, and I'm your humble and obedient host, joined by the pastor, who's a master of film watching. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob Metzel. How you doing, Jake? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing fantastic excited to be here and why wouldn't i be in case you were confused you are also listening to sound of sanity but you're listening to our the first episode that we are doing of a little sort of mini within the series series that we will be doing the last thursday or no false incorrect we will be doing the last tuesday the last tuesday basically however many episodes we do a month the last one of those is going to be a movie or is going to be an episode where we have already watched a classic film, which we will appraise you of what that will be so that you can watch along with us. And then we will discuss it and we will say wise and witty things as we are wont to do on Sound of Sanity. Why are we want to do that? Well, one of the reasons we've got the master of wisdom and wit. Oh, new moniker for... Nathan Alperson. Nathan Alperson, yeah. And the mag- master of wisdom and wit, Jacob Mentzel. And... <laughs> It's Ben Salzer. <laughs> I'm here too. <laughs> Our beloved. Hi, Ben. <laughs> Hi, Jake. Beloved personal assistant, Benjamin Q. Salzer. And he likes to talk about film, don't you, Ben? That's right. Not movies, Nathan. N- film. No, just various film stocks. 24 frames a second. They go past the little light out of the gate and the light shines on the thing and people watch them and enter into them emotionally and then they have to engage with it. That's how a movie works and that's what we're going to talk about today. Now Jake, why 
are we on Sound of Sanity going to talk about, I guess it'll be, if we're doing it at the end of every month, we're going to talk about 12 movies in 2018. Lord willing, the show keeps going. Creek Don't Rise, all that kind of thing. Stuff, we're going to talk twelve about 12 movies this year. And yet... On Sound of Sanity, the bookening, other fine Warhorn, in the larger Warhorn universe where you and I have had discussions before, we have said art should play a rather small role in people's lives. Yep. And we will continue to say that. It's one of our things, our, Absolutely. our uh, horses that we like to beat or whatever you call those. That's not the right analogy. It's one of those. <laughs> yeah. One of those things we like to come back to. So, Jake, we've said that art should play a very small role in people's lives. The last thing we want to do is say, ah, you got to watch so much more movies. And if you're going to be able to engage with the culture, then you have to understand movies and everything. I mean, you know, we always kind of call bunk on that kind of stuff. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So what's the dealio? So, so we're not telling people, man, if you're not watching a movie a month, then you need to watch a movie a month along with us. What we're trying to do is equip people to engage with film in a critical and discerning way. Because I think we live in an entertainment culture. Most of us grew up processing our lives through movies. M- movies and film, they play a big role in a lot of people's lives. And what we want to do is take time to help people understand what's going on in a movie and how's it working on you and how do you need to come to any movie that you might watch. And so this is a way for us to to grow ourselves in our discernment in in the way that we we approach movies, but also hopefully help you, the listener, grow in wisdom and maturity and how you engage with the movie. If you don't want to watch along with us, that's fine. But if you've you know if you've seen a movie that we have. Uh, that we're 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 dealing with. Um, yeah, it's a little so, bit like our podcast, the Bookening that we do, where uh, you and me and Brandon Chastine we talk about books and we really love books and we, we read lo- a book we, a month. We want to sort of educate ourselves and learn from each other and grow in our understanding of literature and how writing works. We also kind of want to be a little self-deprecating sometimes about that, like. It's not the end of the world if someone doesn't have time to read the great works of literature. It's not a mark of godliness to read the great works of literature. Yeah. On the other hand, the great works of literature are great. If you're going to engage with them at all, it's good. To do it with friends and in community and in a way that's discerning. And in a way that the you start to get some of the tools that you need to be able to engage with them. So when Brandon comes on, he starts talking about the author and the context of the novel and the different types of tropes and literature. That's helpful stuff if you don't know that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's stuff that you can apply to all kinds of things that you read and come across. And we want to be able to do the same thing for you with movies. Right. And I think I've, I've always thought with the booking and with any kind of discussion like this, one of the principal utilities of it is the utility that you get around the water cooler when you go to work and somebody just watched the latest episode of whatever the show is and they say can you believe that Dolores stole the file papers from Mildred how did what what you oftentimes if you step back and observe what you'll see is people suddenly having a discussion about morality about life, about humans. It's the kind of discussion that you'd feel a little queasy about having in real life because you'd just be gossiping about Doris and Mildred. But what art does actually give us is a place where we can gossip fruitfully about people and learn about human nature. So at its best, that's what I think books and movies can give us. But again, we don't want to overstate that. It's Yeah, everything in its proper place. Everything in its proper place. Read your Bible first, go to church, love people. Do you work your job, whatever, those things, all much more important than watching movies. Yeah. 
and we ain't gonna, we, we, we won't spend a lot of time talking about it this episode, but you can find other places where we've talked about it, and I'm sure we'll talk about it again. We ain't gonna redeem the culture through art. True enough. We ain't gonna do it. We're gonna redeem the culture through Jesus Christ and the work of his church, the work and of his, his people, church and his people, the preaching of the word and the discipling of the nations. Right. And it turns out that most of that work will not be done through watching or making movies. Right. But a little bit of it on this show will be because it's fun. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think it can be helpful. Enough said. Enough said. All right. So let's talk Casablanca, the greatest movie of all time. That's what most people say. They put it right up there in the top two or three. Yeah, if I think listed third after The Godfather and... No, second, second just before second. The Godfather. Before The Godfather. Between The Godfather and Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane. Yep. Casablanca, of course, the most approachable. Of, if those are the big three, which I don't know whether those are really the big three, but let's just assume those are the big three. Casablanca, far and away, the most beloved and the most belovable and the most approachable. It's not all violent and the kind of thing that women don't like, like The Godfather, and it doesn't have graphic sex scenes like The Godfather. It is not an austere, austere sort of work of genius like Citizen Kane that is a little bit hard for people who haven't been educated in film to perhaps enter into. It's just a good soap opera of a story that everybody, you know, it's a love story. It's good versus evil. It's it's a crowd pleaser. So mm-hmm. people like Casablanca. We've all watched Casablanca now in preparation for this episode as well as mm-hmm. other times and in Ben's life. And I think, had you watched it before, Jake? Yeah, I think so. It's one of those movies that you you can see without having seen it. Like you've seen so many of the scenes here and there and you've, but yeah, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I've sat down and watched it before. Casablanca is the story of what? Spoiler alert, by the way. It is set in World War II before we won. (laughs) (laughs) It's the story of two star-crossed lovers coming together in an odd place after there's been a lot of water under the bridge. and All uh, the gin joints in all the world, she walked into his. Their names are Rick and Ilsa. It's in the middle of World War II. So basically, you got your Rick. He's a cynical American expatriate. He owns a bar in Casablanca, which is this seedy sort of Moss Eisley kind of. Actually, Moss Eisley is probably kind of a Casablanca by kind Casablanca. of place. Yeah, yeah, this place where all the riffraff of the world are going to meet. It's this nexus. It's also the escaping point for people to make it to the West from to make it to America to from it, whatever war ravaged places. So you've got all the people from Africa and from... People speaking all kinds of different languages. So this is this exotic melting pot. And Rick has a little cafe where he drinks and looks awesome and smokes a lot of cigarettes, as does everybody in this movie. Yep. Has figured out how to make his peace with the Vichy-controlled government, which is to say the Nazi-controlled government, basically the puppet government of the Nazis. Just uh, he sticks his neck out for nobody, as, That's right. as, as he says. And then she shows up. And then she shows the up. The woman. The woman. The beautiful. Rick, of course, played by Humphrey Bogart. Ilsa played by the beautiful, the gorgeous Ingrid Bergman. And she comes with her husband, who she thought she was dead, who she thought was dead many years earlier when she had a fling with Rick in Paris. And they. He had been oh. thrown into a concentration camp for being a part of the resistance. And she got word that he was dead. She has a fling with Rick. The day that they're ready to leave together from Paris, she finds out that he's alive and she ditches Rick at the train station. Rick retreats into his cynicism and his alcohol and runs a little bar and just tries and survives. He has no idea. She just didn't show up. 
Right. He has no idea what the backstory is. Then she and her husband show up and suddenly there's all this drama because her husband is a famous freedom fighter who the Nazis want to take out because this guy is going to like basically t- turn the war against them. He, they're, they're scared of him. He just escaped from a concentration camp unless my memory yeah, me. And he's, he's been eluding their grasp all across Europe. Yep. And Rick is in possession of basically two golden tickets to America. Right. Ways to get through the lines that are indisputable. Right. Which is basically uh, something that was contrived for the, the movie. <laughs> right. And that you just have to buy into. Mm-hmm. And so what's Rick going to do? So first you have to go through figuring out the story of what actually happened on that day, fateful day in Paris. Right. And then you realize that Rick and Ilsa really still love each other, yet she's married. And so what, what's going to happen? Is she going to... And not just married, head. but the, the the thing that keeps this f- famous freedom fighter going, the reason he gets up in the morning, the reason he can basically save the world is... She is his strength. She is his strength. And, and so... Rick could be selfish and just take that all away from him. And, and, and he could maybe pull it off and really get Ilsa to ditch him. And maybe he and Ilsa will go to America and leave Freedom Fighter Dude behind. Maybe Freedom Fighter Dude will go to America and Ilsa will stay behind with Rick. Right. And uh, at the end of the day, the problems of three people... They don't amount to a hell of beans in this crazy mixed up world. They'll always have Paris, but Rick being a good guy, reluctant hero for all of his put on cynicism, does the right thing, sends the married couple on their way and takes the fall or plans to take the fall for them, probably end up dead or in a concentration camp. Turns out the day is saved and Rick slides right on through like he's slid through life. The classic American hero, a little bit of an outsider, a little bit of a cynic, but he's going to do the right thing. Catches a break. Catches a break. Good friend in a high place, as it turns out. His good friend being the thoroughly, delightfully corrupt French chief of police, Louis Renault, played by Claude Rains, the wonderful Claude Rains. That's Casablanca in a nutshell. It's a story we've seen many times since. Sure enough. Ben is nodding his head in agreement. I do. <laughs> he nods his head in agreement. So a little bit of background on this movie. It was directed by Michael Curtiz, who was a Hungarian-born filmmaker and immigrant, was uh, wooed by Warners in the 1920s, had a long and pretty illustrious career in Europe, directed a lot of silent movies. Mm. I always think it's interesting the guys that made the transition well from uh, sound. Doing their thing in, oh, from sound to... Well, from America to, or from Europe to America is one thing, Mm. but also just from one kind of filmmaking to another one. And you can see how good Curtiz is with the actors and the dialogue and all that stuff. You know, you watch a lot of movies like in the early 1930s when sound came in and all that stuff's really stiff. And a lot of directors found that they had this whole style of acting, a whole style of directing. You know, oh, I can't just shout directions at you what to do anymore. I can't just be like, take her in your arms and kiss her and now look at him. Hmm. Just to give you the the most black and white example of that sort of thing, you know, and suddenly... Yeah, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, no pun intended. So here was a gentleman who's was just a good workmanlike director. You probably haven't heard his name. Probably most people don't know who Michael Curtiz is, but probably most people have seen his movies. He did Casablanca, Captain Blood, one of the best pirate, maybe the best pirate movie. Sorry, Pirates of the Caribbean fans. But Captain Blood, the first uh, Errol Morris, or not Errol Morris, I'm sorry, Errol Flynn, swashbuckler pirate movie. 
the best Errol Morris swashbuckler. Errol Flynn. Errol, crap. <laughs> the best <laughs> Errol Flynn swashbuckler movie and one of the best swashbucklers of all time. Adventures of Robin Hood. He did Yankee, Yankee Doodle Dandy. White Christmas is a perennial favorite of many, myself included. Yeah. So what you see there with Michael Curtiz is a lot of different styles, a lot of musicals. different musicals, drama, romance, action. This guy could do it all. And he really was just a workhorse. He was famous for basically the way the studio system worked at that time is you'd get assigned things. You wouldn't necessarily have any choice in the matter. And if you were an A-lister, you know, somebody that had really proved themselves like Curtis, you'd get the good assignments. So he got the good assignments. But even in between assignments, he might shoot four, five, six pictures a year. Pictures would be what they would call him back then. He would just ask to do B-roll on somebody else's movie. He was a guy that just liked to work. People really argue about how much he brought to these movies. He was responsible for all these great movies. He was the number one, you know, if you're going to have a prestige picture, you give it to Curtiz, you assign, you put him on the assignment. But he doesn't have the kind of discernible style that someone like Alfred Hitchcock, some of the names that we still know that even people that don't know a lot about movies probably know would be like Alfred Hitchcock or later on like Stanley Kubrick or Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg. People like that where you see them really putting an individual stamp and you can just, you can even without knowing a ton, you can look at it. Curtiz would be an influence on someone like Spielberg, I think, because Spielberg in his way is also just a workhorse and a craftsman. He just happens to be such an exceptional one that he's become very powerful and successful and everybody does know his name. You could argue someone like Steven Spielberg is a little bit more in the line of someone like Michael Curtiz than he is, say, of someone like uh, Alfred Hitchcock or Stanley Kubrick, because those men are really imposing their vision, their ideas. Like you can, It's unmistakably, you see the hand of, or Orson Welles would be the classic mm-hmm. Hollywood example. You see the hand of the director in the movie. Someone like Curtiz is going to stay out of the way of the movie and do what's best for the movie, which means he can make White Christmas, and it's going to be a whole lot different than Casablanca or than uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy or than Captain Blood, because he's just going to find the best Thing. I think Spielberg's actually a really good example because you see Spielberg now, he does his adult movies like what's coming out this year with Meryl Streep, The Post or something like that. Yeah. And then he does his kids' movies like uh, this year it'd be Ready, Ready Player One and he can do them both and you can feel the hand of Spielberg behind it if you know Spielberg as most of us do these days. But also the style is going to be a lot different. It's going to change up. He's going to, it's just going to look different. It's going to feel different. It's going to be dictated by the story he's trying to tell. Mm-hmm. The difference between Spielberg and Curtiz is that Spielberg at this point gets to choose the stories that he tells and Curtiz in the studio system wouldn't because the studio system was a lot different. And that's maybe the next thing you should know about Casablanca is that it was made under the studio system, which would, it would again mean that the director wouldn't be the number one creative force. In fact, it's a little interesting to even talk about who would be the creative force. Hal Wallace was the head of production at Warner Brothers until Casablanca. Casablanca actually drove him away from Warner Brothers. He was a super producer. He was responsible later on. He went to Paramount. He did True Grit. That's what with John Wayne. That's one of his claims of fame. But he also did, at Warner Brothers, he did the Humphrey Bogart movies, the Betty Davis movies, the Errol Flynn movies, everything. A lot of what we remember from classic Warner Brothers movies back then is what Hal Wallace was responsible for. He actually ended up leaving because when Casablanca won the Oscar for Best Picture, Hal Wallace got up to accept it, realized that Jack Warner, the head of Warner Brothers, had run to the stage and grabbed the Oscar and was already giving the speech, which infuriated Hal Hmm. Wallace, and they broke up and ended up fruitful. (laughs) (laughs) 
But if you wanted to point to one person who's probably, you kind of say, is the visionary, the, the, the person who the buck stopped with on Casablanca, I guess you might. It's really an argument. I mean, Curtiz would have brought a lot of his ideas. It's not like he was a slouch. It's not like there's not a through line that runs through the Michael Curtiz kinds of movies of the way he likes to do things. He's, he's a good craftsman, and you can see the good craft, you know, whether it's White Christmas or Casablanca, to take two extremes. But he wouldn't have been the one that was, would, would have dictated how the story ended, how Wallace for famously came up with the last line of the movie. The, he said, we need one last line as Louis and Rick walk into the mist. What's it going to be? And then how, how Wallace wrote, Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship, which I actually have some alternates here. Louis, I begin to see a reason for your sudden attack of patriotism. While you defend your country, you also protect your investment. <laughs> Great classic line, right? <laughs> Uh, the number two, if you ever die a hero's death, heaven protect the angels. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Louis, I might have known you'd mix your patriotism with a little larceny. They probably should have gone with one of those lines, right? <laughs> <laughs> but that sort of exemplifies just how many different voices and people would have been coming together. The other people that I think made a huge contribution to this movie would be the writers. And there's a few different people that are credited as the writers, but I think the important ones would be the Epstein brothers. These guys were famous Hollywood wits, identical twin brothers who were famous as script doctors at the time. So you have a dumb script that's not quite working or it needs a dialogue polish or whatever. The characterization needs to be fleshed out. You get these guys and they come in and they just add a lot of color color and wit. And I think you can see their hand all over everything that I really love about Casablanca. I want to say it's probably them. them. They'd be responsible for just all the fun little character moments, you know. The great little one-liners. The little one-liners and the different people. I'm a drunkard. Right, yeah. That makes Rick a citizen of the world. (laughs) That's the kind of dialogue that these guys would actually engage in in real life. Like, you want these guys at your Hollywood party. They're going to show up. They're going to show up and be hilarious. Kind of funny, actual wits of the period. They famously didn't take Jack Warner very seriously, the head of Warner, scary guy, actually. They called him the butcher of Burbank to his face, which is a dig (laughs) at the fact that his came from a family of butchers in Ohio. So, (laughs) hey, it's the butcher of Burbank. So, they're the guys kind of guys that could get away with that could tweak authority and you just see i mean if casablanca is lovable for one thing it's that attitude especially because the authority happens to be the nazis so you don't feel that bad <laughs> yeah, about yeah, yeah. The tweak. but it's got that that spirit of like my one of my favorite little throwaway moments from casablanca and it's never mentioned as one of the great lines or anything but it's when rick is looking at his dossier and he just says are my eyes really green or something gray, yeah. are my eyes really gray you know, just that kind of flippant, I'm going to yeah. tweak you, Mr. Nazi, but I'm not going to do it so much that you can really take offense, but I'm going to let you know that I know we're both <laughs> in on the joke. That's who the Epsteins were. I mean, they were those kinds of guys, and you got to kind of love them for it. And you've got a couple other writers. There was Howard, K-O-C-H, how do you pronounce that? Uh, Cook or Coke, it really just depends on the person. Yeah, I'm not sure. Let's, let's, let, we'll, we'll call him Howard Cook. He famously wrote the War of the Worlds broadcast that Orson Welles did um, that uh, <laughs> caused lots of confusion. Mass hysteria. <laughs> Mass hysteria. So there's a, one of the reasons that Casablanca is a little bit hard to talk about it is, again, because there's so many different creative forces. So there wouldn't be any strong authorial voice anywhere. 
writers would be assigned, directors would be assigned, the producer would have a lot of control, but then he'd let Curtiz do his thing, the writers do his thing. So there's no one person that can really take credit for Casablanca, and that causes a lot of stories of people in the decades after the movie became a beloved classic. People wanted to take credit for things. So the Epsteins said that Howard Cook didn't add anything. Howard Cook famously said he added all kinds of things, and he supposedly gave it the kind of leftist politics. You know, he created the whole backstory where Rick was running guns in Ethiopia, and who knows what the truth is. Probably he did give it some good structure, and then the Epsteins made it fun. I mean, that's... Mm -hmm. But who knows? Who knows? It's really hard. There's, There's a lot of apocrypha about Casablanca. The famous ones that you've probably heard are that Ronald Reagan was originally offered the part of Rick. It is true that a press release, I believe, at one point did go out saying that Ronald Reagan had been offered the part of Rick and he would have been a contract star that they could have given the part of Rick. But the way that they wheeled and dealed at the time, they would put those press releases out all the time. And to this day, this is what they'll do, you know, attach a project to a star so we can get some publicity and have people talk about it. Probably they were never going to actually go with Ronald Reagan, but they did give it to Humphrey Bogart. And that brings us to Humphrey Bogart, the great star of stage and screen. He fought, was involved in World War I, was a tough guy, hard drinker, very famously plain spoken and honest about his opinions, the kind of guy that would just say about other movies that were in production at his studio, that one stinks, and say it to reporters. Reporters loved Humphrey Bogart because (laughs) he was just cynical and honest and didn't have a lot of respect for authority. So (laughs) Sounds like, (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, Humphrey Bogart, I think, probably was a lot like his characters. Where he wasn't like his characters or where you the things that might surprise you, he was largely self-taught but also loved to read, could quote thousands of lines of Shakespeare. But where he does live up to his image is that he was a major drunkard and would, you know, he probably would have been at parties with the Epstein brothers where they would all be drunk and saying uh, witty, cynical things like they do in Casablanca. He got his start actually as a stage actor, played a gangster in a production called The Petrified Forest, which Warner Brothers brought bought the rights to. And he just played the bad guy, small role, but memorable role. And Leslie Howard, who was a star at the time, asked that they bring the, the guy that played the gangster in and let him play the gangster in the movie version, which they don't usually do. Usually they recast those with one of those their own stars. But Leslie Howard ended up insisting on it, and Humphrey Bogart always loved him for it, and I think named his second daughter Leslie Howard Bogart. Bogart then was stuck in the studio system, where, again, they would just assign you movies to do, and he played so many terrible second-lead gangster, tough guys, snarling bad guys in movies. I think he got shot by Jimmy Cagney, who was the big gangster star at the time, four or five times on screen. He was always dying. You can find a lot of, you can find some really bad Bogart movies from the early 30s and into the 40s. So Humphrey Bogart was famously friends with John Huston, who's a Hollywood legend, a director, the father of Angelica Houston, who's still a star that's around to this day. John Houston really wanted Bogart because they drank together. They were drinking buddies. He wanted him for a movie called High Sierra, which was kind of a rough and tumble. I guess it's worth taking a step back and saying Warner Brothers was the socially conscious, uh, sort of realistic movie makers of their day. MGM, 
would have done all the glamorous kind of musicals and things like that, the real ritzy stuff. Warner's was relatively small fry compared to them. They couldn't mount those kinds of expensive, lush, escapist productions that people liked to go to at the time. So they made up for it by ladling on the social conscience and the violence and the sort of ripped from the headlines. They made movies for like the little guy. So like right now, this is kind of a bad example, but you have HBO and they are the prestige cable network. It's not TV, it's HBO. And the number one shows go there. And HBO gives you a complete package of the best writers writing the best shows. They also ladle on the sex and violence because that's what people like and that's what you pay for. When you pay for HBO, you're paying for a subscription service that gives you the best TV by the best writers, but also... Lots of sex and violence. Lots of sex and violence. So the way that another prestige, a lesser prestige cable subscription service, like say Stars or... Showtime. Showtime. Showtime's actually the one I was trying to think of. What they do is they up the sex and violence and sleaze factor and the kind of relatable human drama factor. Because they don't have the writers. Because they don't have the writers and they don't have the glitz and glamour. And, you know, they're never going to be able to mount a production like Game of Thrones, but they can do something like... But they can throw in two rape scenes for every one of Game of Thrones. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So in a, in a much less sleazy way, that's Warner Brothers. We can't mount the prestige productions that M- MGM can do. But man, we can do fast-paced, crackling gangster stories and stuff that's ripped from the headlines, things that people are interested in, things that, you know, sure, your wife might want to drag you to go see the latest musical, but what do you really want to see? You want to see Jimmy Cagney gunning down guys and that was Warner Brothers. And that, they also did have kind of just a working class appeal to them and something of a social conscience, I think, um, in a way that those other studios. But again, it was all in pursuit of being topical. So Bogart really fits into that because he's a man's man. He's a violent man. You, you can't really imagine Bogart getting a contract at MGM and going to star in movies where he has to wear a tux and tails and walk around on sets that look like they've been designed to sparkle off the screen. You can't imagine Humphrey Bogart trading one-liners in some kind of espionage situation or firing guns or doing those kinds of things. And that's what Warner Brothers was good at. And so he was able to become a star. All of that to say, his big break was High Sierra, which was directed by his friend and drinking partner who ended up, some other star, I want to say it was George Raft, turned it down. George Raft famously turned down everything that would have ever made you know who George Raft is. The story is that George Raft turned down Casablanca. Again, that may be be, uh, apocryphal. But George Raft was a big star at the time that no one's heard of. Because, and there's story after story of George Raft t- making the wrong choice, historically speaking, about different roles. Humphrey Bogart gets it. He becomes a star. Then he does the Maltese Falcon, which really establishes his persona as dry, kind of cynical, man's man. Just got that little bit of conscience to him that makes you love him. He famously says, uh, you know, uh, the Maltese Falcon is what dreams are made of. Humphrey Bogart's the kind of guy that can pull off a line like that. It's the stuff that dreams are made of, but he's also a tough guy, but he's got a little bit of romance to him. And so Warner Brothers started to develop him that way, and they would be very conscientious about the way they developed these stars at the time. So you can actually read a memo from Warner Brothers that says, let's start developing Humphrey Bogart as a romantic lead. We think that women, despite his face, women will accept him as a romantic lead. And they did, and Casablanca is the famous 
outpouring of that and the thing that's really cemented his legend and his reputation, that and the African Queen, which came much later. I, th- I think what people probably mostly remember, Humphrey Bogart, if you haven't seen anything else, you've seen Casablanca and you've maybe seen the African Queen. So you've got Humphrey Bogart, then you've got the beautiful Ingrid Bergman, who was a beautiful Swedish lady. She worked for a different company. She worked for David O. Selznick. David O. Selznick rented her out, basically. And the reason he did was because... So Hal Wallace, who produced Casablanca, he really wanted to get Ingrid Bergman loaned out because he thought she would be good with Bogart. Meanwhile, David Selznick, who has the contract, has a contract on... um, Ingrid Bergman, that makes it sound like he's going to have her killed. <laughs> he owns her contract. He's the producer that basically you know, tells her what to do. He realizes she's a Swedish star. Sweden joins the Axis powers. And so he realizes that this is going to happen. He realizes he's got a Swedish star whose capital is about to plunge. Like people are about to hate Ingrid Bergman. That's what he's afraid of. Mm-hmm. So he moves quickly to let her star in another studio's movie to loan her out. How Wallace gets her because Selznick wanted her, wanted to get rid of her for a little while until the trouble passed. She was a pretty scandalous lady. She slept with a lot of her co-stars. That's something that's uh, worth, and, and none of these people were Mother Teresa in that department, certainly. But Ingrid Bergman ended up having a lot of trouble in her career, had to leave America at one point because she became so famous. I don't remember exactly what the incident was that were finally cemented her as too much trouble. But she famously did not have a lot of chemistry with Humphrey Bogart. Not that they didn't like each other, but it's all acting. And she's very, very good at playing chemistry. Roger Ebert, in his assessment of Casablanca, just talks again and again and again about how she paints Bogart's face with her eyes. And it's a really interesting thing to watch what her body language as she talks to Humphrey mm-hmm. Bogart, as she looks, in, I mean, it just it does so much for Humphrey Bogart's character and for Laszlo, uh, Victor Laszlo, Paul Henry's char- Henry's character, that she just drinks them in, both mm-hmm. of the men in her life. She does such a good job with that kind of stuff. Warner also had a huge stable of contract players that they could assign to this movie. So they had Claude Rains, who was really good at playing those effete kind of villain parts and does a great job as the maybe villain Louis in the movie. He played King John in, in another their Michael Curtiz movie, The Adventures of Robin Hood. Robin Hood. And, and then you had all these uh, great actors. The guy that played Conrad Veidt was a very famous German actor who had to leave Germany because of Nazism, basically. What did he do? <laughs> he, he, was married to, he was married to a Jewish woman, he, and he, yeah. he, uh, everybody had to identify... All the film actors. Mm-hmm. All the film actors were required to identify, uh, and he identified himself as a Jew, even though he wasn't. But he wanted to stand in solidarity with his wife is what I understood. Right. So he goes to America and actually requests to play Nazis and then plays them as villainously and awfully as he possibly can. He had um, it written into his contract that he, he would only play Nazis. He wants he to get to, back at Nazis, yeah. which I think is pretty great. So one of the people that has the most personal baggage against the Nazis is the guy that plays quite well, the villainous, you know, one-dimensional evil Nazi dude in the movie. Another interesting fact is that he was great friends with Paul Henried, who plays Victor Laszlo. Paul Henried came from Austria, was going to be interred, um, not interred, is that the word? Um, yeah, you're interred at a concentration camp. He was going to be interred in Britain, Conrad Veidt intervened basically just to help his friend. Interred in Britain? Yeah, like, yeah. Henry would have been a refugee from Austria, and he would have been interred for some time 
in Britain while they figured it out, basically figured out allegiance. Yeah, so he would have been in, in England as the war started to break out. And just by virtue of being Austrian, it would have rounded up a bunch of people like that. The usual suspects. The usual suspects. <laughs> and, Foreigners. Uh, anybody that could be sus- suspected as being a spy or as being there to cause trouble. Right. He could have just been stuck in kind of a camp kind of a situation for a while. We did the same thing here in the United States, infamously, with anybody of Japanese descent. Exactly. So he, could, he, may, he may have been stuck there for a while, but his friend, Conrad Veidt, uh, vouched for him. And so Major Strassler helped Victor Laszlo get his letters of transport in real life, IRL. So that's a fun little piece of trivia. But the other thing that a lot of that people have pointed out about Casablanca is there's so many people who were European expatriates that worked on the movie who were of Jewish descent. If very fam- who knows how much some of this stuff is apocryphal, but supposedly everybody really was in tears when they did the famous La Marseille scene where the Nazis are singing the song and then they sing the song against the, supposedly all the emotion you see in that scene is real. Yeah, it's, it's not something that we may, I don't think we've said yet uh, that's worth saying is what this movie was greenlit in 1941, like at like December of 1941, weeks or days after the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor mm-hmm. was produced and released in 1942, the first year that the United States had entered the war. And so everything was, it was all live. It was fresh. This is not a post-war production. This is a mid-war kind of thing. And so nobody knows how this is going to end. Nobody knows how this is going to play out. Yeah, exactly. It it just makes everything that much more real and alive. I mean, I think it gives the movie some extra oomph when you realize the end of the movie, Rick walks into the mist with Louis and it's easy to look back and say, okay, well, they went and they won the war for us. You know, it was people like that, but we didn't know that that was going to happen. We didn't know which way it was going to go in 1943. The movie... There's one other thing I want to say, but I'll I'll leave it. And if, if in case there's anything else that we need to bring out about this, no, I think that's that's helpful to me. Mm-hmm. Maybe I don't know what else you're planning on saying, but I w- I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit more about where Casablanca sits, sort of in film history. Uh, there's a couple things to say about that. Number one, they didn't know that they were making a classic, which everybody always says about classics. But there are some classics where people know they're making classics. Gone with the Wind was mounted with the idea that it was going to be a game-changing movie based on the most famous, popular, beloved book, that it was going to make all the money and that it was going to change the way that movies were made. And then it did. And then it did. And then its producer spent the rest of his life trying to make it again, and he never did. And there are movies like that. Casablanca, not one of them. Humphrey Bogart starred. It's really fun, actually, to watch movies like Across the Pacific and some of these other movies that are very much like Casablanca that Humphrey Bogart starred in during the same years with different women that he's caught in these romantic situations with. And it's fun to just watch them and see what works and what doesn't and speculate why Casablanca is the one that That stuck. stuck. And the fact is, Casablanca would have been one of four or five movies that most of these people made that year. It was an A picture. It wasn't like a little B movie. It wasn't like the little movie that could. It was a movie that was meant to do well and starred A stars. And But nobody knew that it was going to have the kind of uh, longevity that it's had. And it really actually caught on. The thing you have to understand about all these old movies is that when TV came in forties, the 40s and 50s, they didn't have anything to put on TV because there wasn't a TV industry. So they showed old movies. And so there's a whole generation. My dad is in his 70s now, and he would have grown up just seeing these movies on TV and they would have just been part of his 
pop culture landscape, the way that we under, you know, the way that we all know certain YouTube videos or memes or things like that, that that's just like are kind of universal among people of a certain age. Movies like this are starting to not be universal. Like you only watch Casablanca if you're interested in old movies or if somebody really recommends it or whatever. But at a certain point for kids that grew up in the 50s and 60s, these things just would have been part of their cultural landscape. And Casablanca turns out to be a great movie that everyone remembers. And there's famous movies that didn't do well on their release, like It's a Wonderful Life or Wizard of Oz. And then through this process kind of became beloved. But Casablanca, everybody kind of liked. And it's just one of those ones that have stuck around. Humphrey Bogart had a big resurgence in the 1960s. I mean, he would have been dead by then. He died pretty young of lung cancer, if you can imagine that, or maybe esophageal cancer. I don't know why. I don't know. I don't know what he did that caused that. But um, kids in the 60s, film students, the, the like the Spielberg generation, the movie brats really embraced Humphrey Bogart. A couple of old stars became suddenly super relevant in screenings in the 1960s. And it would be the Marx Brothers would be one of them and Humphrey Bogart would be another. And in both cases, I think you can kind of, if you know anything about the 1960s, see why. You've got these really cool old icons that suddenly feel really relevant because they're anti-authoritarian, because they're sticking it to the man, because, you know, you could speculate all day. But Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, Humphrey Bogart had a resurgence in popularity that's never really gone away. I mean, people, he's just become an icon of of cool, I think. Not so much, I mean, these days, it's if we all, if we remember anybody from the old days, it's going to be Marilyn Monroe, Jimmy Dean, and I don't know, maybe, uh, what's the guy on the motorcycle? Steve McQueen. Cary Grant. Cary Grant. There's kind of the first tier of James iconic Stewart. guys. I think Humphrey Bogart's maybe in the second tier, but especially Humphrey Bogart in that trench coat, wearing that hat, sitting in the dark, smoking those cigarettes. Those are pretty iconic, yeah. kind of. We all know them, I think, even if we haven't seen the movie. It's like, when you do finally see the movie, I assume this was what you thought, Jake, like, oh, well, there's that. Yeah. You know, kind of like Marilyn Monroe's dress getting blown up. If you ever watched that movie where she walks over the great, great, great and her dress gets blown up, it's like, oh, there's that thing that I've seen in a million yep. other contexts. There's the actual context for it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Humphrey Bogart standing in the mist in his long coat and his hat. And there he is in the dark smoking a thousand cigarettes and remembering things and drinking whiskey. It's I thought that line was play it again, Sam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Woody Allen, Woody Allen. Well, Woody Allen's actually a good example of the 1960s trend towards bringing this stuff back because Woody Allen did a play in the 1960s called "Play It Again, Sam," which has confused a couple generations since then because now everybody thinks the line is "Play It Again, Sam," but of course, famously, she doesn't say "Play It Again, Sam." She says "Play It Once, Sam," for old time's sake or something. Whatever she says, it's not actually "Play It Again, Sam." The only other kind of thing that I would like to point out about this movie, and I want to do it in the way in the least dicey way possible but i think maybe just as part of this is just something i'd like to set up because i think it'll serve us well as we talk about movies moving forward the for lack of a better word jewishness of the movie and of that era in hollywood we talked about the epstein brothers who shaped what a lot of what's famous about these yep. movies Jack Warner would have been Jewish. Michael Curtiz was Jewish. I just think you can't talk about old Hollywood without talking about the Jewish experience. They shaped a lot of what we think of as pop culture from that era. A lot of maybe even what we think of have inherited as the American dream, a vision of America. Absolutely. Yeah. And you see it with, 
I mean, if Humphrey Bogart is the iconic American hero, obviously Humphrey Bogart himself isn't Jewish, but he's a very like, okay, so there's, it's hard to talk about because there's this whole group of conservative Christians that are super obnoxious about this. And they don't seem to my mind to know much about Jewish people or Hollywood, except for that they don't like either one. And so (laughs) they just say things that are terrible. I'm not trying to say anything terrible. I think a lot of that is just racist garbage. So if you're familiar with any of that, that's not me. What I am trying to say, though, is that you just have to understand how the Jewish perspective shaped our ideas of self through Hollywood at that time. And I think it's helpful to realize that you've got these two guys named Epstein. They're creating this iconic American hero, and he has a very sort of Jewish perspective. He's the outsider. I mean, historically, if you just look at Jewish history and how it's gone since the days of Christ, he's the cynical outsider who has made his fortune and figured out how to survive, but nobody really trusts him. And he has to play poker with everybody. And he can't really, he's got a heart of gold, but he can't, you know, he can't stick his neck out for anybody. And it's just a very Jewish way of seeing the world, if that's okay to say. Yeah, I think so. And it's what you kind of have to love about that way of, I mean, it's the it's the best, most coolest version of it as played by Humphrey Bogart. You know, he's that cool outsider. And it really taps into universal feelings. I think that we all have whatever race we are of just like, I don't quite fit in, but wouldn't it be nice if I, the reason I don't fit in is actually that I'm cooler than everyone and not that I'm dumber and stupider (laughs) than everyone, (laughs) you know, I'm, we all have felt like outsiders and we've all felt like not valued or appreciated. And we've all just tried to do our best in a system that, you know, doesn't quite get us the basic lie that Hollywood sells you is that you can do that and be, it's super cool and it's super sexy. That's how you live the American dream. Might be true in some cases, might not be true in others. I'm not trying to make any kind of value judgment right now. All I'm saying is, as we talk about old Hollywood movies in particular from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and even before this year, I don't know how many of them we'll end up talking about, but I just want to kind of put that in people's brains as a way of thinking about this material interpreting interpreting it because I just think it's important. And I think I'm not making any sort of racial generalizations that the race in question wouldn't be the first to make. You can watch all kinds of documentaries celebrating the Jewish experience in Hollywood and how they shaped Hollywood and Broadway. Yeah, absolutely. Irving Berlin was, Irving Berlin invented modern Christmas and he was certainly Jewish. And so it's just something to think about and be aware of. Broadway's and almost, especially early Broadway, almost exclusively a Jewish endeavor. Right. So that's a little bit of context. What uh, people are probably tired of hearing me talk about this. What baggage did you bring to this viewing of Casablanca, Ben? Well, Nathan, I'd seen it once before. remember liking it, but not, not really tucking it away as something amazing. So I think this time I appreciated it a lot more. I just enjoyed it as a movie. I don't know that I... It doesn't strike me as like a spectacular movie, just a good one. Like I said, something with a lot of iconic bits. Goes before a lot of movies that I saw before I saw Casablanca. Well, it's kind of always going to have that problem. Like, you can't listen to the Beatles now and be impressed by... How unique. How unique and cool they were because everybody's ripped them off yeah ever since thousand every song you hear on the radio people are still doing was built on the legacy of the beatles it's just like there's no way that the beatles are going to live up to it except the cool thing about the beatles is that they often do right actually yeah Yeah. the the cool thing about finding one of these like uh classic movies that that really you know defined something or made its mark is that 
is finding that they still hold up. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that you can, like even with the Beatles, with some work, you can cast yourself kind of back. If you listen to enough music, you begin to realize, wait a minute, they started doing this then? Mm-hmm. Oh, I get it. It's like, it's like you, you can kind of put on older ears in a certain way. I think you can kind of put on older eyes as well Yeah. Um, with Casablanca. And you, I, one thing that I really appreciated more this time was the deafness, uh, the deafness of the character work. You brought up several lines, I think, from the movie already. But mm. yeah, there, there, were a lot of, there were a lot of good bits where you're like, yeah, people don't, they don't write characters like that for the most part anymore. Well, what it makes you realize is that in so many movies these days, even good ones, the characters are behaving so much like children. Like this is an adult mm. movie where there's yeah. levels of irony and of understanding and of misunderstanding yeah, and people gonna, are saying things lot, without... It's going to go over your head if you're... Yeah. Yeah. If you watch it as a kid, it's just not for you. Like you watch Star mm-hmm. Wars and I like, I love Star Wars, but you know, <laughs> the dialogue is like, I am your father. Will someone get this big walking carpet out of my way? You came in that thing. You're braver than I thought. Like that's the wit in Star <laughs> Wars is you have a junky space junker and <laughs> fastest hunk of junk in the galaxy. Right. I don't know what else to say about it besides Casablanca is obviously a movie made for adults. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not in a sleazy way, although right. a little bit. You know, I mean, it's sure, the, the subtext is all there. Yeah. Well, the other thing I'll say about that, I think the more old Hollywood movies you watch, the more you do just get your your ear. You do learn how to watch them, you know, mm-hmm. and to enter into what they're doing to get past. I think the two things that a lot of people have trouble getting past. One of them is really obvious, and one of them I think is not very obvious, but it's obvious once you think about it. The first obvious thing is black and white. Oh, most movies I watch are in color. I'm used to movies more seemingly approximating the reality of my life. And this is stylized in a way that most of what I watch isn't um, or doesn't seem to be. Right. The, the other thing that I think maybe people do notice, maybe they don't, but the acting acting has really changed in the decades. I mean, they didn't have, nobody had ever heard of method acting. Nobody had ever heard of entering into the character. Humphrey Bogart wasn't like sitting there, you know, everyone on Rick ha- on set has to call me Rick so that I can enter into the character of Rick. Humphrey, what Humphrey Bogart's doing is much closer to stage acting, where you're projecting, you're playing for the camera, you're making motions with your hands. Like with Ingrid Bergman, she's a very good actress, but she's doing things, she really is painting her co-stars with her eyes, looking them all over in a way that is selling you on her love, but it's heightened. It's a little bit more than what someone would do if they were just in love with someone. We, there's a certain kind of realism that that acting has moved into that... Yeah, it really is. And there's a sophistication that people have in their understanding of film. Like you're just born and inundated from age zero with movies and TV and YouTube and everything else. You just understand how stories are told on screen and you expect a certain kind of sophistication and you bring to it and you're watching a certain built-in sophistication now that filmmakers of that era couldn't expect their audiences to have. Somebody who was they just 40... don't have the context. Well, if you think about Casablanca coming out in 43, that means that if a 50-year-old man went and saw Casablanca, that man grew up before movies were a thing. He was born in 1900, before there was a single movie screen. He was born prior to 1900. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's say he was he 43. Was born in, he was born in 1893, right. in fact. So, yeah, this guy, like, his dad fought in the Civil War. He did not realize that there would ever be a thing called movies. And then there's a thing called movies that can't come around. 
the actors are actually mitigating that tension in their performances. And they were directed to mitigate that tension, to heighten things, to play things a little bit more stagey, to sell people on what they were doing in a way that actors are directed not to do now. The relationship that people have with cinema and the relationship that the people that are working in cinema have with cinema, that actors have with the camera, has just changed a lot in subtle ways and in obvious ways. One of the obvious ways is that they were told, because you have to remember, again, Casablanca is made in, uh, released in 43. Sound movies came in in the late 1920s. So sound would have been relatively new. And so you'll notice in old movies, they, are, they pronounce everything very crisply, like as if they're playing to an audience. The, the, audi- the recording technology also wasn't as good. So even a tough guy like Bogart talks with this kind of Eastern seaboard sophistication, just the way that he pronounces his words. He's been trained. Bogart didn't really talk like that, but some studio person, some script lady or somebody, some expert in diction would have taught Humphrey Bogart to pronounce his words like I'm pronouncing them in an exaggerated form right now. He would have been told, here's how you have to do it. And so there's just a certain style to the way that everyone talks in that movie. It's not how any of them probably would have talked in real life. It's just a weird aspect of the performance at the time. And it's something that you have to get past. To, you have to, if you're going to just like enter into the Rick Elsa love story, there's going to be subconscious things that are going to hold you back from that a little bit because it's like, why are they talking like this? Why is it black and white? Why are they acting like this? This isn't how I'm used to humans. And you could argue probably that what we do is just as phony in movies now, if you wanted to, but it's our phony. It's the phony that we're used to. And back then they had a different kind of phony. So, I mean, if you watch a movie now, I don't want to be too distracting to you, but try looking at how many times people blink in movies and you'll realize that they don't blink except for for dramatic emphasis. And then you'll look at people in real life and you'll realize they actually do blink. Movies have and always been a phony medium. But the phoniness changes, the style of the phoniness and the utility of the phoniness changes. So that's one of the things that you have to overcome watching old movies is just learning to enter into their version of phoniness. Jake, your baggage? I think I said before, this is one of the those movies that I'm pretty sure I've seen without ever having seen. And maybe I, I've even sat down and watched it um, and not remembered. But the, the a thousand scenes and lines or whatever that I I just know... I mean, it was like I had watched it a mm-hmm. hundred times before, except that all of the things that you learn to think are cheesy or cringeworthy actually work in the context of the movie. Nice surprise. Right. You know, so I guess maybe I was expecting like, here's looking at you kids to really not be something that Humphrey Bogart could pull off, but he did. Yeah. I guess the other baggage that I, I bring is uh, I've not watched a lot of old movies or a lot of classic movies, right. um, but I sure have seen a lot of junk that's downstream. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen the, I guess, the Casablanca story a hundred different times in a hundred less compelling ways. Right. Not a not a film buff, not a movie buff. So I guess that's the baggage. I just kind of came with open hands expecting to see one of the two greatest movies ever made, expecting it to sort of be obvious why that was the case. And was it? Yeah, I think so. Maybe not obvious, obvious. It's... Like you said earlier, it's it's not a spectacle. It's not like uh, there's nothing from my modern perspective mind-blowing about it. And I can't really see anything that would be mind-blowing about it. But man, it, it really holds together and it really works. And it's what you want in a movie. It's like a good symphony. Everything is working together to tell the story. And mm-hmm. the places where it's thin, it 
or whatever, it's covered over by uh, other things. Places where it's weak, it's held up by other strong points. And it makes emotional sense, even if uh, some of the things it's asking you to swallow are dumb or silly. And it just works. I think what we should do in our remaining time is we should make a thesis statement about what this movie is trying to say and why people like it. I think that's what we should do. Sounds good. And then we should talk about the different elements of the movie. Cinematography, the score, the story, the plot, the characters, whatever, and see whether they support this thesis statement or not. Then what's the th- what would your thesis statement be about what this movie is saying? Not that every movie has a moral, but why do people like this movie? Why does it make mm. them feel good? Why is this a perennial favorite? Well, Nathan, I think it's a perennial favorite because of the idea that even if you're cynical and washed up and the love of your life left you, and although even saying that, I think, well, actually, Humphrey Bogart's pretty successful in the movie. I mean, he is, sure, he's, he's kind of embittered and stuff, but... He's he's doing pretty well. He has a he has a club that everyone loves. He gets to he, he, I, uh, drinking is not really a benefit, but he likes to do it. And <laughs> oh, it's a very concise thesis statement. There we go. Yeah, <laughs> we get to be like Humphrey Bogart, who likes to drink. Jake, agree or disagree? <laughs> uh, I was questioning my thesis statement. I was making it. So maybe it's it's the idea that. No matter what, you can still... Uh, I don't know what I'm saying. Jake, you go. Come back to me. <laughs> the problems of three people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. It's that idea that we're all a part of this bigger thing, and we have our own stories within our stories, and we have the choices that we have to make. We can make them cynically and selfishly, or we can make them sacrificially. There it is. It's in front of our characters. They have their their love and their desires, and it's all right there. It's on a silver platter. They can have what they want, or they can do reluctantly do the right thing, be a hero after all, serve the common good, and that's what they do. They make the hard choice, despite whatever choices led them to that moment. And you get a little bit of it's better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all. Always have Paris. And we'll always have, yeah, we'll always have Paris, but we're going to do the right thing mm-hmm. here, despite ourselves. And that's that's where it resonates. It's that for an hour and a half or two hours or however long it is, the problems of three people do feel like they <laughs> right <laughs> amount to much more than a hill of beans. Uh-huh. And it's because they represent the problems that we all, that we all face. Right. Turns out that somebody like Humphrey Bogart, who's a cynic, who's been burned, who's hurt, who's wounded, and who's learned to never stick his neck out for anybody and never say no to himself can, when it comes down to it, say no to himself right, and do the right thing. That's what's compelling. And that's what, you know, that's what allows you to wash over this weird romance thing that happened. Yeah. How's that work? No, I think that's... I think True. I think that's basically what I was saying. Yeah, that's basically what Ben was. <laughs> ben just thought he'd say that only in the most terrible, <laughs> obtuse way I obtuse. could think of doing it. Yeah, I think it's a. I think it's a wish fulfillment movie. You could argue that it would be better wish fulfillment if they got together at the end. But I say no. Mm-mm. Yeah, I say the wish fulfillment is we all wish we could be noble and do the right mm-hmm. thing. The and noble the sacrifice. Yeah. were down, we could make the right choice and that everything could be in some Hollywood way set up for us such that... We got the right break. The right, right break such that making the right choice pays off for us. And it redeems everything. And it yeah. redeems everything. Suffering. Even I mean, though we, we had to go through accepting you know, death in concentration camps or whatever. Right. 
there's this legend that goes around that Ingrid Bergman didn't know who she was going to end up with. There's no way she ends up with Humphrey Bogart. The production code wouldn't have allowed it. The moral censors of Hollywood, it was a Catholic organization, and, and adulterers die. That was just one of the rules that they had. They had a lot of weird rules. Not that that one's so weird, but they had rules like if a woman's lying on a bed, a man can only put one leg on the bed. He cannot lay down in the bed with her. He cannot put, he cannot sit down completely on the bed, but he can rest one leg on the bed. They had all kinds of things like that. So when you think about those being your censors, you might be able to contrive some ridiculous ending where Laszlo dies and then they're allowed to be together. Mm -hmm. But you certainly cannot contrive any kind of ending where Elsa actually just makes the choice to stay with Rick. That's not a real choice that they would have been allowed to make unless she was going to die to pay for it and even that would be dicey but maybe you could get that through like they make the wrong choice and then they're punished for it but it would have very clearly been the wrong choice but yeah i think if they get together all that to say i think if they get together nobody remembers the movie i mean i think when people talk about wish for a moment they think about like james bond wouldn't it be cool to drive a car and have beautiful women and just kill whoever got in your way that is one kind of wish fulfillment that the movies give us but an even maybe more potent brand of wish fulfillment is something that taps into our feelings of moral inadequacy and lets us indulge the angels of our better natures it's why so many classic movies endure from it's a wonderful life to casablanca to yeah other examples of classic movies the other way to, th- to think about it is if it had really focused on making Victor Laszlo the hero. Right. Wouldn't have been as compelling because Victor Laszlo is perfect. Right. That's hard to enter into. Right. I think the movie does a fine enough job of making him a pretty compelling straight hero. I actually agree with way. you. Do you. Ben, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. It's interesting because like the, one of the common criticisms you hear about the movie is that Victor, there's no way Victor Laszlo is any kind of a foil for Bogart. There's no way that... I don't believe that. He, yeah, he's a little bit of a square. He's a little bit of a stiff, but he's the kind of square, stiff person that leads revolutions, like, because it'd be not nice, but I can name people like that who are... Well... Who I know, you know? Yeah, he's going to be the guy where they establish it, the song scene. The La Marseille. The La Marseille scene. Mm-hmm. where they come out of Rick's office there the Germans have co-opted Sam's piano and they're and they're saying what's the song they're singing some German they're singing song, some yeah. German song it's not the German national anthem because no I, I would have could, they couldn't get the rights actually so right hmm. which is but weird, the point why can't you steal the rights from the country that you're at war with but anyway the point is the German the Nazis are in a corner and they've they've gotten a hold of Sam's piano and they're playing a German song and they're oppressing everybody the cafe with it. Rick comes out of the office and so does Laszlo and you think everybody's looking I'm looking at Rick. I'm thinking Rick what are you going to do here? Are you going to go over and say I've got one piano player and be John Wayne or what? Victor Laszlo seizes the moment and instead of walking over and confronting the Nazis, he goes to the band and he says strike up La Marseille. Mm-hmm. And they do. And then they all start singing. And it becomes this really emotionally powerful, cathartic moment Mm -hmm. where he had the right idea and he shows the Nazis just how weak and pathetic they are. And I could get behind a guy like that. I could love him for doing that. If I were the Nazis, I'd want that kind of guy dead. Mm -hmm. Then he's going to take his wife back to the hotel room knowing that he's just like if there was a a target on his chest he's just amplified it because now they're angry he has said yes i will be a threat to you and so he then he's going to go out knowing that he's being followed and trailed and he's going to try to make it to some secret meeting like that's that's cool and you can see why a young ilsa you know 19 year old ilsa would just sort of fall in love with a guy like that 
young idealistic girl. And here's a guy who's upright and going to do the right thing and not afraid of the consequences. And if it kills him, it kills him and put him in the concentration camp and torture him. And he's not going to give up anybody and he's going to find a way out or die or whatever. And he's okay with that. It's actually a pretty great foil. I I buy it to say that Laszlo's not a real threat. I mean, yeah, there is that sense in which, however it's established, there's not the emotional intimacy between Laszlo and Ilsa. But I kind of buy that. I buy too. that mm-hmm. too. I think that's the yeah. kind of the kind of man who's going to be able to do those things is going to be the kind of man who's going to be maybe lacking in the emotional intelligence department. Yeah, he might be a little bit of a drag to live with after the war. Sorry, Elza, but he did save the world, the free world. So <laughs> I guess, you know. Yeah. Humphrey Bogart's more fun. What, what are you, you going to do? Sometimes he has an inner life. I wanted to, just in talking about the La Marseille scene, this is a really good movie to watch for film grammar, just how movies are put together in, in a really simple sort of a way, like just shot, reverse shot, over the shoulder shot. There's nothing fancy about it, but it conveys so much powerful emotion just through here's a close-up of someone's face and here's another close-up of someone's face. And it's done in a very artful sort of a way. In thinking about La Marseille and how powerful that scene is, it's powerful simply because they cut to a bunch of people crying and a bunch of extras moved. And there's this one like Spanish-looking woman on a guitar that really sticks with me. Yeah. Um, who's just like obviously enraptured by it and all these people. And there are all these little subplots in the movie that establish that the, I keep wanting to call it the cantina, Rick's Cafe. Right. Rick's Cafe is a seedy place. <laughs> mm-hmm. and you've got the pickpocket. you got the chick who gets thrown to the curb and then comes back and now she's a French chick and she's on the shoulder of a German. Suddenly there there she is at uh, singing and crying yeah. La Marseille. And then compare that to... So that might seem really simple, like any TV hack is going to just direct the scene that way. But people don't. And movies sometimes that are really popular and successful don't do simple grammar things. And this is the kind of thing, if you want to engage with movies, you want to start to notice. One of the failings of that stupid Dawn of Justice movie, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, is that we don't get shots of people that love Superman we see Superman do these heroics. There's like this one montage where Superman, I think we see a like woman on a roof as the floodwaters yeah. rise around her. And that's the closest. But then we have Superman save an astronaut. And we have Superman walk through this crowd of, I think he saved a woman from a burning building. And there's this crowd of people like yeah. kind of worshiping him. All you need there to make those scenes work, simple film grammar tells you, you get some coverage of people's faces and we feel empathy when we see them crying or loving Superman or they don't do that. What we get is like a cool, well-designed Zack Snyderian shot of Superman in slow motion. And it doesn't actually tell the story. And we've had now two movies where we're supposed to just accept that Superman is beloved and that people treat, feel about him the way that you're supposed to feel about Superman. But the film language never told us to feel that way about Superman. And so you don't think, I mean, maybe that seems like a silly comparison, but it, there's a popular big budget studio movie and nobody thought to just use simple, I mean, it's sort of like reading some modern blog post that goes on and on and on. And it's like, you should just read Strunk and White and realize what the rules are for how to write something that 
communicates to people because you're not actually communicating what you wanted to communicate. The movie's exposition is telling me to feel something that the camera shots aren't. And so you watch Casablanca and you take for granted that there's nothing particularly showy or fancy about it, but you want to just see how good film grammar tells a story. I mean, and there is cool, fancy stuff. Humphrey Bogart surrounded by darkness, smoke billowing, billowing around me, it's it, around him. He reminisces. The way that that's framed tells you everything you need to know. And you never need to know what Humphrey Bogart's past is. Mm-hmm. You never need to know anything right. more than here's a guy that sometimes his demons gets the better of him and he sits in the dark and he's surrounded by smoke. Well, yeah. also the, the opening the opening shot of Humphrey Bogart is him playing chess apparently with himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it has it has a glass of some kind of liquor there and a cigarette. And instantly you know, oh, this is the kind of guy this yeah. is. <laughs> and then it like pans up to him. Right. Like, oh, that's who you are. Right. The strategist. I'd like to meet with Rick. Rick doesn't drink with customers. Right. <laughs> Fun trivia thing. I don't know if this is true or not, but I was I was looking probably on Wikipedia or something and saw that apparently he was playing chess with a friend by mail on set. Yeah, I, I or something I, I like say that. He like was, he was like, yeah. "This is my move," and then he'd get a, a letter. This is my move, and they both had their a friend of his. They both had their boards, and I don't know whether that specific story is true, but that certainly sounds like the Humphrey Bogart I know. I mean, he was a much smarter guy than he usually got to play in his <laughs> movies. So the shot that Ben just said, if you want to learn to hate modern movies, just think about how much information that shot gives you, and it's not a bunch of close-ups. If you want to learn to hate Lord of the Rings, everybody hates Lord of the Rings for the wrong reasons. They hate it because it doesn't follow. It, no, there's no Tom Bombadil, and I don't care. Tom, who cares whether there's Tom Bombadil? <laughs> the reason to hate Lord of the Rings is I because think I know what you're going to say. <laughs> what? I think I know what you're going. Can I guess? Sure. Can I make a guess? Yeah. We pull up to a new place. We announce the name of the place, <laughs> and we announce what that place is like, and right. we have a little exposition dump about. <laughs> Right, it's like Peter <laughs> oh, Jackson man. saw the scene where Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke stand on the cliff overlooking Moss Eisley Spaceport, and Obi-Wan says, Moss Eisley Spaceport, never will you find a more terrible high of scum and villainy. And Peter Jackson was like, I want to make that movie and make that scene and do it over and over and over again. So characters are always portentously right? arriving at place, stopping, <laughs> announcing. Dun, 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 dun. Mordor, last bastion of the West. Really, Gandalf? You waited until it was right in view to stop your horse, pull up and say that. Uh, <laughs> uh, then the way that they communicate sadness is by having long slow motion scenes of characters crying uncontrollably or rejoicing and dancing uncontrollably in slow motion. Right. And it's so basic. And and it's like, it doesn't take much. Michael Curtiz did not have to be a genius. He's doing rather obvious things. Chessboard, cigarette, drink, guy in white suit, smiles cynically or whatever it is as the other character enters. He's instantly, just by putting that extra little bit of thought into it, he tells mm-hmm. you so much about the character. And that's the really fun thing about watching any great movie, but particularly old movies, is the care that they put into things like that, that you just don't it really see. Is, they really do such a good job of, of showing you 
establishing those characters. Uh, uh, my favorite example of this is Sam. Mm-hmm. Sam has just a handful of lines, mm-hmm. and but you know right away everything you need to know about Sam, and it's just these little touches, including a little touch. Right, right. Humphrey like, Bogart puts his hand on Sam's shoulder just as he walks into a scene in one. Right, and just these little things that they do to just establish and reinforce the fact that Sam and Rick, they have history, they go back, they love each other. There's a, loyal, a bond of loyalty there. They're, these guys have been through stuff together. Right. And they care deeply about each other. And they're going to always have each other's back. And you, you get that from just a few little subtle things. Right. And if you really want to... I think Lord of the Rings is the perfect example because it's so... And I understand Lord of the Rings is this resonant story and people like Lord of the Rings. And I do like the Lord of the Rings movies. They're fine. But... You want to just see someone who doesn't bother to do things like that. <laughs> it's Peter Jackson in the Lord of the Rings movies where you'll have a big establishing shot of like an army or people showing up somewhere or something special effecty happening. Then you will cut to a medium shot of the character looking at the other character. Then you'll cut to a close up. And I also get he's working with Peter Jackson's working with characters that have to be different sizes, which means it's harder for him to set up those shots where the camera just pans and shows you something about a character or whatever. Fine. But so much of it's so basic and it's relying on the characters to say things to tell you what's going on. It's not taking advantage of what a really great, really subtle, really unobtrusive director like Michael Curtiz for Casablanca can do with just a handful of moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there are some modern directors who are good at that. I'd say Peter Weir is quite good at I mean, he's a lot more like Curtiz, just a craftsman. His yeah, style doesn't really obtrude. But he what? made the Dead Poet Society, though. The I know, I know he made a terrible time. movie. I hate that Dead Poet Society. But he's still quite a good director. He did Master and Commander, right? He did the Truman Show, Master and Commander. I mean, he's he's able to create that. To, he's able to convey a lot of information. Yeah, I don't want to turn bit. this into old versus new. There are directors that do it and do it really, really well. I think a lot of where you'll find it is on TV these days. That's where the good people have gone. And I'm not recommending that anybody watch Breaking Bad or Mad Men, but if you just watch a scene on YouTube from one of those things, you'll tend to see a lot of the kinds of stuff that I'm talking about where they're using even the limitations of what they have to work with to just tell a quick visual story about somebody or something or an incident. When you start to, it's one of those things where once you start to notice it, you start to appreciate it and you appreciate the extra work. What do I want to say? You appreciate the... The elbow grease? Yeah, you just appreciate the elbow grease that they've gone into to make you feel things and to make you understand things and to communicate information. And if you become, if you start to appreciate it too much, you will start to resent things that are a little bit more lazy, lazy. And you'll start to realize how much of filmmaking is really, really lazy. Independent on Mm -hmm. big budgets. Independent on special effects guys are going to do all the work of making this impressive. Did you guys like the, this might sound like a really stupid question, but did you like the dialogue in the movie? Yeah, definitely. Did it feel arch or forced or stagey or people don't talk like that to you guys? Well, like arch in a delightful way, maybe. Yeah. Probably the only line that ever felt forced to me was here's looking at you, kid, but it just worked. It's kind of like saying, may the force be with you or make him an offer. Exactly. Or Adria. It's like one of those things that it's so iconic. It just can't get outside of, you just can't leave that baggage behind. Yeah. I actually think there is one clunker of a line, and Roger Ebert taught me that this was a clunker of the line because he really hated it. There might even be a couple like this, but the one that I always think of is where the camera pans in on Humphrey Bogart and he takes a drag off of his cigarette and says something like, 
now it's time for destiny to take a hand or something oh, like, yeah <laughs> something like that that one always felt like it overextended uh, see, I, his... I, that one didn't even stick with me positive or negative got washed away i have no patience the number one thing that i hate in modern movies is the banality of the dialogue it's yeah. just like you're gonna make me listen to these people talk and they're not gonna say anything interesting for part of the fun of a movie like Casablanca is I can imagine going and seeing it with friends or whatever when it was in theaters or with my wife having a whole lot of fun quoting it for the next two weeks yeah. like you know <laughs> even here's looking at you kid I mean your wife would be like we're having mashed potatoes for dinner and then you'd be like oh, I thought we were having pizza and she'd be like you were misinformed you know? <laughs> right exactly <laughs> 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 yeah it gives you so much and old movies in that they're so generous. You hear stories all the time about, I don't know that this is true about Matt Damon, but we'll just cast him as our bad guy in this fake example I'm coming up with. Matt Damon stars in a movie and somebody else has a really cool line and Matt Damon goes to the producer and he's like, I'm the star, I need to say that line. You think about how generous, I mean, Humphrey Bogart didn't really have a choice and who knows what choice he would have made if he would had one and who knows how he exerted his the power he did have. But you think about how generous-minded the movie is in general, just to give so many different characters colorful moments, great yeah. lines. I can never remember what the woman's name is, but where he says, Ilza, I love you, but he pay me. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a favorite. Just that guy. That guy gets a moment, whoever that guy is, the waiter, yeah. the the fat, lovable bartender guy or whatever you yeah. know. Carl. Yeah. Carl. Carl, yeah. I gave them the best table because I knew they were Germans and they would take it anyway. You know, that just uh -huh. everybody yeah. has a moment like that that you remember. I don't understand. I guess people wouldn't have patience for it, but I really don't get this is going to sound like such a crusty old man kind of a thing to say, but why not have the characters in Star Wars talk like that? You might as well. You can still tell the same basic Star Warsy story. Why not have them? Because they need to sell toys to seven-year-old kids. Yeah, I thought that's it, what Guardians of the Galaxy was. It's like old Hollywood, except in space, right? Well, that is the reason, and I've come down <laughs> in my liking of those movies because I think they are kind of violent and mean. But mm -hmm. the first time I saw Guardians of the Galaxy, actually the whole Marvel franchise as a whole, I like it because it ain't Casablanca, but it comes the closest to there's a whole ensemble of people and they all have something to do and they all have little clever moments and none of it's... They're mm -hmm. all going to be respected and sure. given their... Yeah, and everybody will get a chance to shine and yeah. people that you didn't expect to will suddenly get the biggest laugh in the movie or get the... It's fun. Like, it's not just Robert Downey Jr. does everything and everyone else is there to make him look good. It's everybody's there to look good and everybody's there to play and everybody seems to be... Whether it's true or not, you get the idea that the group of actors like each other and are generous with each other and want each other to shine. And realize that each person shines best when the movie shines brightest or something yeah, like that. which mm -hmm. is, I just think... So true. Like, imagine if, like our little Christmas play that we did a few episodes back where I was supposed to be a jerk about like, oh, Ben, you can't, you ruined. Imagine if we were actually like that with the podcasts that we do. Like, <laughs> I can't have Ben say something smart because <laughs> I have to be the smart, clever, funny one. You're no, just a productionist. The smartest thing for Jake as CEO of Warhorn Media, me as creative director, is to surround ourselves with all kinds of really clever, creative, interesting people. And then our names go on the things. 
and we get the credit anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, Humphrey Bogart seems cooler because Carl gets a funny line. That's how it works. Yeah. I think that kind of generous mindedness is really just a good principle for creators, if I may be pretentious about it. Let everybody contribute what they can see what happens, you know? Obviously, mm-hmm. it's got to be disciplined and blah, 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 nuance, nuance, nuance. But, you know? Yeah. It's fun and and funny. What's the guy's name? Curtis? Michael Curtis, the director? Mm-hmm. Curtis. You called him a craftsman, and that made me think back to what we've, on the bookending, come back to over and over with uh, William Shakespeare being a craftsman, and not somebody who thought of himself as an auteur mm-hmm. or a genius or anything, but just a guy who works with words. What's interesting to to me about that comparison, intentional or not, is that if you were a film history guy and the records of a thousand years in the future and you discover these old films, you know, maybe the maybe the names weren't attached to them, you would never connect them, or if they were all connected to the same name, you wouldn't believe right. they were by the same person. And a lot of of how we lots of people look back on Shakespeare and are like, well, he couldn't possibly because this is so different from that, right? Or even back to like the letters of the Apostle Paul. Well, Timothy and Ephesians and and First Corinthians are also very different. It couldn't possibly be by the same person. And I guess the reason I just wanted to draw those comparisons is just it, it's it's just interesting that this this that Curtis has different yes. completely different movies that don't really seem to have his his fingerprints on them. Yeah, it's not. He didn't do all suspense movies with mordant senses of humor like Alfred Hitchcock did, but he did like classics of every genre <laughs> instead. I mean, that's. I think it's. I really love guys like that. I love good craftsmen. I think. I mean, we've talked about it on the bookening a million times. Curtis, I don't know. He probably wasn't a very nice guy. None of these people were, but I love the fact that he's just this hardworking guy that made like a baker's dozen of classic. Movies that will probably be remembered as long as movies are remembered. People might not remember his name. Most people don't. Mm-hmm. But probably a lot of people like Casablanca better than they like. I didn't like. know his name before you said it. Yeah. You know, we just talked on the bookening not too long ago about James Joyce, who went into his own head and made all these crazy artistic things. That's one kind of film director that does those kinds of things. But yep. Michael Curtiz is just the guy that wants to tell you a good story and he's going to do whatever he can in service of the story, not in service of Michael Curtiz. Yeah. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I love it. We should probably be wrapping this discussion up pretty quickly, but Ben, your favorite character? Rick. Rick? Yeah. What made you like Rick? Well, he's, you know, he's... Hard drinking? No. Hold on, wait a minute. <laughs> He's hard drinking. Uh, no, that's not it. Uh, that was your thesis statement about the movie. <laughs> that's right. That was it. <laughs> Rick is a hard drinking no, man. I, I, and people I, I wish wanna, that they could be as hard drinking as him. I want to abandon that thesis statement, Nathan. It's so. very important to remember because if there's one thing that these movies like, make me want to do, it's <laughs> smoke, <laughs> cigarettes. Smoke and drink. <laughs> but, uh, By yourself. Turns out room. Uh, I smoked cigarettes for many years and no one ever accused me of being as cool as Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? I always kind of thought I was as cool as Humphrey Bogart when I lit up a cigarette, but no one else seemed to see me in that light at all for some reason. And Humphrey Bogart did die in his early 50s of a very mm-hmm. painful cancer. Late 50s. Late 50s. Age 57. Age 57. There you go. Yeah. Well, so I like Rick because he's he's a fun character. He's witty. You can see him maneuvering. You can see everyone maneuvering, in fact, and that's a really fun part of the film in general. Everyone concealing their motives and playing poker with the Germans. So, uh, yeah, I like the way that he's he's like that, but he's also, he still cares about people, even mm-hmm. though he kind of doesn't want to. 
There's a really nice moment when he saved before the whole Elza story or in the middle of it when he saves the the young wife from having to basically mm. sleep with Captain Louis to get Renoir. her, you know, to get out or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's just, that's a nice moment for Rick. It's yeah. nice to see him do something yeah. completely selfless that's not, I mean, it's one thing to do something selfless, saving the free world. It's another thing to just do something selfless. And so it's nice mm-hmm. that they gave him that moment. Yep. Jake, your favorite character? Um, I'm going to guess Carl. <laughs> Is it Carl? <laughs> it's, it's not Carl. Is it Ugarte the thief? It's not Ugarte or Ugarte or however you say, however you say his, his name. name. Yeah. I feel like I can't say Rick because it's the obvious one and Ben said Rick. The character I'm going to pick is the character who I think it gives us the most bang for our buck, and that's Sam. Sam does more to communicate the serious emotional history of the drama of this romance um, in his couple scenes in our flashback scene to Paris mm-hmm. does. Like just Sam when Ilsa walks in and he notices her. I, at first I thought this is really meant to establish her as this beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, as it plays out, like, and then Sam with Rick, what Sam does for for the romance, what Sam does for Rick, just in terms of character development, just by very subtly being there, having his lines, pulling it all off really well. I I just really love that. I mm-hmm. love the performance. I don't know the name of the guy who played the part, but he did a great job. Dooley Wilson, if you can believe it, he was not a piano player. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> you don't say. Some of the worst piano miming <laughs> in the history of all cinema. <laughs> he's sitting there pounding on the keys while, while uh, the, the piano is doing a, stuff, doing a run on the upper registers. He's just pounding bah, on the lower bah. registers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One thing that you have to remember about these old movies yeah. and we'll probably talk about this more in other movie episodes uh, they did not expect that you were going to have this movie on blu-ray so you could watch it over and over and over again not only took you one viewing to notice that but it's the kind of thing that you can see how when you're making a movie that you don't you expect just don't really can't put have your eyes on that level of detail right. don't need to have your eyes on that level of detail. a lot of times in old movies the cuts won't match as well like somebody will start to sit down and then it'll suddenly cut to them being sat down just things like that that would never pass muster now but it's not that they don't care it's just that they don't have to care because we were accusing peter jackson of being lazy in how he sets up those those scenes or whatever Mm -hmm. and you can imagine that i want to give peter jackson the credit of having more respect for these guys than this but you can imagine at least his defenders saying talk about lazy like look at like these bad cut look at these cuts look at the look he's now he you know this jacket's button now it's unbuttoned now it's now he's smoking it. Now there are two cigarettes. Now there's right. like... <laughs> he smoked that whole cigarette in two seconds. <laughs> he just lit it up. And the next thing you know, he's like, anyhow, the, the, their attention was on the story and on really communicating that in the characters. And, and Sam does so much, like yeah. you said. And Sam... Sam almost renders the Paris scenes moot. Like it would almost be a better movie without the Paris Without scenes. having to see that, mm-hmm. yeah. Like the Paris yeah. scenes can't live up to largely what Sam through his just silent reactions to her and to Rick and his not wanting to play the song and just a yeah. couple of things that he does. He sets up that love story so nicely and gives it such weight that it's almost a disappointment to suddenly see them driving in a car with a really cheesy uh, <laughs> background that suddenly changes in the middle yeah. of their drive. Like the shot doesn't change, but background the background does. just changes. Yeah. I thought that was pretty, I mean, I kind of wish they could have done a, yeah, I don't know. 
I, 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 I would almost have rather I would almost have rather have had a little bit of exposition dump mm-hmm. about being left at the train station. I don't even mind the scene where you know the rain is washing away the letters, whatever. That's fine, but. I think if the movie has a weakness, which it doesn't, but if it does, it's that the central love story you just have to accept. There's no actual love story that can live up to the weight that they put on it. And if there is one, they didn't write it Hmm. or perform it or whatever. Maybe it's Bogart and Ingrid Bergman just don't have that chemistry that you'd actually want. Maybe it's because the writing's not, I don't know. Maybe they just should have, but their best bet might've been to just cut Paris and not let us actually know it except for in their memories and through their reactions to it i don't know yeah i mean the paris stuff's done about as well as anything like that can be done but it's yeah it's fine it's fine that's where we get the first years looking at you kid yeah that, you gotta have that. they pay that off later you know and so they, they use it really well and effectively it's just that you take the paris scene out of the movie you've not taken a whole lot from it but you take sam out of the movie mm-hmm. and man you've you may have just gutted it. Right. Hmm. And that's that's one very minor character playing a very big role in developing the movie for us. So Yeah, absolutely. So anyhow, that's my that's my pick. I needed some kind of a, a non obvious answer. So that that's my non obvious answer and my justification. Right. Those are good picks. They're probably better picks than mine, but I cannot tell a lie. My favorite character is definitely Louis, because he's the funniest, the most fun. And I think the more so than the love story, what I love about the movie is the poker playing. Like Ben said, the people, everybody's got an agenda. Everybody's got an angle. They're all feeling each other out. They're all trying to see who's on what side. And I I really enjoy and find resonant in a weird way. Like it reminds me of situations where I've been a Christian at work and had to decide who to witness to. I mean, it's just like, there's actually a lot of things in my life that I think about that it's resonant. Um, and maybe if I had a great love story in my life, maybe, you know, maybe one day I'll get married and we'll have Paris and then I'll be like, it's the greatest love story. But for me, Casablanca, what I really respond to is all the shifty people trying to do their best and feel each other out. And Louis ultimately is a pretty awful guy, especially given that he's going to, you know, he's just uh, sleeping with all these ladies who abusing his power, Harvey Weinstein style. And the movie's pretty... Uh, Does movie- a good job of making that implicit it's funny because they actually have had to cut those references out like they they were told you cannot have louis sleeping with these women we know he's a morally compromised character but you just can't do that it's unacceptable so they did it they appeased the censors i don't think there's any question that that's what's happening in the movie it's totally clear yeah it's completely clear but it really makes you sort of hate hbo and all the things that have to show us I mean, I know this is like the most cliched Christian thing to say in the world, but you really can tell adult stories without showing a bunch of smutty stuff. Yeah. I mean, think mm-hmm. about how much actual sexual tension there is in that movie. And there is actually an interesting question of whether Rick and Elsa actually, there's a fade out where they maybe slept with each other. And then they're both, they're both clothed, I think, when she comes to him the night before, you know, the, mm-hmm. the denouement. And you don't really know. And it's nice not to know. And you'd like to think that they didn't. Yeah. Um, but you kind of understand why maybe they'd, you know, why the movie would leave it open to the question. And you tend to think the movie probably was leaving the question open, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. You think they slept together, Jake? No. Good. No. Me neither. No, I don't either. But the, but you, you got to kind of wonder, right? Yeah, I did wonder when I when I when when it faded out like that. The, uh, well, for the yeah, thing. like it crosses your mind, but then you just sort of, 
I don't want them to have slept together. They've already set up set it up in a way that um, whatever happened in Paris, you know, she thought he was dead. Right. So there's a certain kind of innocence attached to it mm-hmm. uh, that's at least forgivable. Right. And you kind of want to think well enough of Rick that he's not gonna he's not gonna did kiss her. Yeah. So well, there it is. You know, but. It's a, well, it's just it's interesting how movies stack the emotional deck that way so that you don't really feel bad about the kiss, but you do feel bad if that fade out meant anything. You're happy that they're both still kind of clothed and unruffled at the when it, the mm-hmm. fade in. Yeah. Yeah. And that this is the a masterpiece of Hollywood emotional deck stacking, like just the fact that she did think Laszlo was dead. I mean, they probably wouldn't bother with that detail now because we don't need the prudes in the audience to nobody cares about them but i think it adds to it actually that you're whether it's just, sure it's hollywood fantasy but it's nice to have everything stacked up in such a way that you can feel good about everybody not the the cheat though the big cheat is that at the, the, the movie you feel really good about louis and uh, it's the beginning of a beautiful friendship and louis not a nice man <laughs> but yeah. you're ready to forgive him because rick's your hero and rick's your boy and rick self-sacrificed and then louis didn't throw him under the bus so louis awesome too and louis a charming scoundrel, so why shouldn't you forgive him? That's just pure Hollywood movie logic for you, but mm-hmm. I will admit while while Collie gets bluffed that it does work for me, and I like Claude Rains as a performer. I think he delivers all that kind of witty dialogue so well and has so much fun with that part. It's just, uh, you gotta love the gleeful, hypocritical, but knows it uh, kind of scoundrel <laughs> character. So yeah, that's the movie. So our thesis statement, Ben's thesis statement about the movie, <laughs> Humphrey Bogart is an alcoholic... And we all want to be alcoholic. I think that was it. Yeah. Does that hold up? But I think Jake improved it a little. <laughs> <laughs> I think this thesis statement is everybody loves this movie because it makes you feel really good about being able to vicariously self-sacrifice and be a cool. Yeah, yeah. Like the possible, the, even the hope that, hey, I could make the right choice. I, I don't have to be selfish. Yeah. Drown in self-pity. Do you buy it? Is that a good thing for a movie to do? Should the movie have made us feel that way? Yeah, I I kind of buy it. They stack the deck so precisely in a way that the deck is never stacked in real life. Right. And they make the choices so relatively easy in a way that they're not, except for in Hollywood, that you wouldn't want anyone to just think that they'd learned all their lessons about morality from Casablanca. Right. Whatever happened in Paris, you know, you want to think that you don't want to know what happened in Paris right. exactly. <laughs> You just mm-hmm. don't want to know what happened in Paris exactly. And they don't tell you what happened exactly in Paris, except that they fell in love. Right. Um, and spent a lot of time in various locations, fully clothed. Uh, but never talking about themselves or their past. Right. <laughs> 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 what did they do with all their time? I <laughs> all right. <laughs> but they were allowed to fall in love in Paris because they were two people in Paris her husband was, by all accounts, dead. And she had every reason to believe that he was dead. It was reported she was he was dead. He was, in fact, taken away from her and put in a, in a concentration camp. She's reeling from that and falls in love with this guy who is also a lot, as it turns out, back in those days, a lot like Victor Laszlo mm-hmm. because he was Ethiopia and Spain fighting the tyrants and the, the fascists and running Everybody's guns. I would have paid it much better. <laughs> Yeah, that, that was a great... I was well paid. In I was well paid. <laughs> the winning side would have made you much better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so then they come back and he's bitter and then they play with the idea of 
she still loves him and it's nobody's fault. Right. And that's where it starts to get really wonky morally is like, nope. Mm-hmm. And it's defense. Well, maybe this is You can make good. all kinds of defenses. Like they People did do stack feel the deck. That way. Things like that do happen, not that dramatically or conveniently or easily, but weird situations happen where people are thrown into not morally gray areas, but areas where they want to believe that it's morally gray and they have to decide whether to do the right thing or not. That's right. And they do end up deciding to do the right thing after coming right up to the edge of not. And they get to save the world by doing the right thing. And they get things. to save the world by doing the right thing. And basically the reason they did the right thing maybe wasn't so much because they had to do the right thing because of the right thing, but because the fate of the world. The world was at stake. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow connected to the lives of these, these three, three people. Little people. Little people. Yeah. What I would say to all that is, yes, it's Hollywood hokum. And it's worth knowing that. And uh, I actually found, I think our friend Wikipedia had a nice quote from Julius Epstein, the writer, one of the twins. He said this in in an interview in 1984. There wasn't one moment of reality in Casablanca. We weren't making art. We were making a living. Movies in those days were prevented from reality. Every leading man had to be a great sexual athlete. Every boy and girl had to meet cute, and the girl had to dislike the hero when they met. If a woman committed adultery, she had to die. Now the woman who commits adultery is your heroine. Well, that's a great quote. And that's the guy that wrote the movie. And, yeah. And wrote all the cynicism into the movie. I mean, that's that's Louis talking right there. That's Rick at his most cynic. That's just like, come on, this is all a bunch of garbage. But we liked it, and we made a lot of money. The biggest lie the movie probably is telling is that there is such a thing as this mystical romance that has no absolutely no depth to it whatsoever, but is just so overwhelming right. and dominating. Like they, Not the lie that people feel that way. Of course, people feel that way all the time. People do feel that way all the time. But just in terms of like real romance, that's just not the way it is. Right. People get caught up in stuff, for sure. And people do get caught up in the past and in the what could have been's and what might have been's and think that they're going to put on a brave face and do the right thing. Maybe the big lie of the movie is this. The stars intended for Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman to be together. That was the great romance. Yeah. And they missed it. And it's okay that they missed it because they did it for a good cause. And it turns out she was married and it didn't work out and they got to save the world. So we can all feel good about the fact that they missed it. But that's not true. Right. You know? It would be if 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 if, if, if uh, Ingrid Bergman comes into your office as a pastor and says, I missed out on my big romance and it's nobody's fault. We got to save the world. But now I'm married to this stiff guy who saved the world and he's kind of a little bit of a square and disciplining my kids and I wish I was married the to man I was made for was this guy over here and then what do you what do you, what do you tell Ingrid Bergman <laughs> wrong 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 <laughs> nope the man you were made for is the man that you married God is good and he's wise and this is the man you're married to and you you simply may not think about Humphrey Bogart you have to I mean I know it's I'm only laughing because it's funny to think of you saying the sentence you simply you, may not think about. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, but well, I understand that what you're talking about is a real thing. I mean, you know, you want to, it's something that just has to die. And I, I don't want to pretend like it's not a, a hard thing or uh, to kill and harder for some people, but it's it. It's over. There is no other reality. There is no better, God's better plan for your life that you missed out on. Mm-hmm. There is no star-crossed fate that what no this is your life you've made the decisions that you've made and now you're here and god is still good you can 
live in a way that honors God and honors your husband and is pleasing to God. And that means you just need to accept the fact that you, in fact, were never meant to be with Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's the um, lie. And he was never meant to be with her. And that's, yeah, it's just the way it is. And it's a powerful lie. And it's one of the reasons mm. people like the movie. And it's a bad reason. I still like the movie, though. <laughs> I want to say I think that there's something sort of nice about being able to vicariously do the right thing along with Humphrey Bogart. I want to say that that's not completely wrong. It's mixed up with some real wrong, some real Hollywood hokum. But if you know that it's Hollywood hokum, you like movies as movies, I want to say there is something. There's a reason the movie's endured, and there's a reason it's a feel-good classic I want to say that that's not like 100% Hollywood depravity. It's, you know, there's something nice about Humphrey Bogart giving up the girl so he can save the world. Mm-hmm. You're never going to be able to give up the girl to save the world. That's not, you know, you'll never have that choice stacked that nicely for you so that you can be that noble and send her off on the plane and then pine away for a little while and then go do cool resistance fighting stuff. By the way, they were they wanted to shoot a scene of like Louis and Rick on a boat somewhere fighting with the Free French Garrison, <laughs> but then they previewed it, and the audience, of course, loved the last line, and so they were like, "Oh, okay, I guess we don't have to shoot the dumbest scene in the world that would totally ruin <laughs> this movie. <laughs> Let's just stick with the good ending." But uh, yeah, any final thoughts about Casablanca, a film by Warner Brothers Entertainment? Nope. Jake, would you recommend that people watch Casablanca? Yeah, I would. It's a good movie. Would you recommend, Jake, that people watch Casablanca? Sure. A lot better than a lot of other movies out there. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. For, uh, if you're going to watch a movie, yeah, it's a good one to watch. It's a good one to watch. And you can see all kinds of interesting things about how they made movies as opposed to then as opposed to now. I really like that movie. It's one of my, it's a comfort food movie for me. I'll turn it on if I'm sick or if I can't sleep or just, it's, it's one of those kinds of movies. It's an old favorite like some people have with Wizard of Oz or with The Lord of the Rings. It's one of those kinds of movies for me. And what you probably do when you can't sleep or when you, what's the other thing I said? When you... Uh, you're sick when you're sick when you can't sleep when you need a friend when you just want a little comfort well i'm guessing you listen to fine warhorn podcasts and that's what you've been doing for the last two hours whatever it is enjoyed it yes you have been edified by it indeed you have and why because it was engineered by benjamin Solzer, produced by nathan alverson and like all fine warhorn products executive produced by jacob Menzel and nathan alverson Until next time, here's looking at you, kid. (laughs) 